0: Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel hosted here on New Books Network. I'm your host. Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Dr. Rachel Meth to hear about her new book, Chasing Chickens, When Life After Higher Education Doesn't Go the Way That You Planned. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm really excited. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this book and what inspired you to write it. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
0: Sure. My name is Rachel, and I uh, did the academic path from, you know, age three to 26, where I did, you know, K through 12, a double bachelor's in English and Spanish. I got a master's in Spanish and then a PhD in Spanish lit as well. And then I went on the job market and got no offers and no interviews and had to really look at my life. And I had a lot of my friends um, asking about what do I do? And I ended up writing a book because I literally ended up chasing chickens as part of that journey.
1: I do want to hear about what inspired the title of the book, too. But first, I want to backtrack a little. What led you into your field of study?
0: It's my parents' fault. They, in high school, I was picking a foreign language and I wanted to take French, but my parents said, no, take Spanish. It's the more useful language. And then when I went to my undergraduate study, I was one class away from starting a a minor or a major in it. Like I was really, I was, you know, I say advanced nerdy students doing AP and, you know, college and high school stuff. So I actually entered my undergraduate with almost a year and a half of credits um for college level and so i was really really close to being halfway through a spanish degree and i was like well why not and i always knew i wanted to do some kind of advanced study and i originally thought oh maybe i'll do law school and i realized through some internships that i would be a good lawyer but a miserable one and so and i knew english majors always struggled to get jobs and i was like well Spanish, right? Like Spanish, you can, and I loved my Spanish classes. I love Spanish literature. It was an extra challenge reading in a foreign language. And my senior year of college, I ended up taking two graduate level courses as an undergrad because I had run out of undergraduate courses to take um, at my level. So I, you know, got permission and and did very well. And I was like, all right, um, I'm going to go for grad school. And then my advisor in undergrad uh, essentially helped package me up and send me to her advisor, who became my advisor for graduate school. And that's how I ended up down at UC California in Riverside.
1: You have a rather colorful story of going to visit the grad school and do your interviews. Do you want to share a little bit about that?
0: Oh, young, innocent, naive me. So um, I ended up not going for like the grad school tours right away because I was really slammed in my senior year. So I ended up going down in April and California is hot and sunny. And you don't realize that until you're in California and you're getting burned as you're, you know, cause I'm a like light, light skin, light eyed person. And so like I burn like a feral tomato and I go down that night. I, I'm like, I'll walk a few blocks and I will walk and get some aloe vera. And as I am in a, the drugstore parking lot, this car almost hits me and I have like an instinctual born in the Midwest wave and be polite. And the person driving the car said, get in the car. I've got money. I was like, what? Um, so I scurried in, got the aloe vera, went straight back. And then the next day, um, someone tried to break into my room while I was there thinking I was a prostitute, um you know get basically trying to open the door and i panicked and i it's the first time you know you're i was 21 and i was like oh gosh what do i do because i knew like i got a door between us and like i can't open it this is a bad idea he he it's it there's been a terrible miscommunication here about what room you're supposed to be at and who i am um and you know It was uh, I ended up calling the front desk because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And my mom later told me, you know, you can dial zero to get to the front desk because I figured it would be faster to get help from the front desk than to call 911. And the person like tears out of there when the when the front desk employee comes around, like tears out of there in a white windowless van, like all of your nightmares. Um, so I called my who became the person who became my advisor, like in tears of like, I don't even want to walk the two blocks to campus. Like, please come get me in the morning. Um, and he did. And was very kind. And I still went to UC Riverside despite that. So, yay! Good branding, I suppose, that they, my experience with my colleagues um, and the professors was good enough to ignore the fact that um, I had the most terrifying hotel stay of my life. It wasn't a hotel, it was a motel, but yeah.
1: It's so hard when you're going to an area to know where, as a person traveling alone, is a good idea to stay and where you're choosing because it's super affordable and um, all that local knowledge And you say in the book that you could have taken that as sort of foreshadowing, and in hindsight, there's all kinds of things that you're reconsidering about. Were there signposts, but life isn't lived backwards, it's lived forward. So that led you at some point to writing this book and wanting to tell other people about all of your experiences and everything that you wish that you had known. Can you tell us about how this book came to be?
0: Yes, it was originally, the original concept was called sticking the landing. And I was going to talk about getting through graduate school, because I discovered there's a lot of unspoken things, a lot of things I learned along the way. And I'd have friends asking me about like XYZ. And I said, you know, it would, you know, and I I also wrote a few articles while I was in grad school about, you know, just some of the things I learned lessons I'd learned, um, you know, Things that made sense afterward and the advice I got from other graduate students, you know, kind of that social group knowledge that comes with going through an experience. And like, even though my parents were both um, college graduates, my dad had gone to medical school, like medical school is different than doing a PhD in the humanities. And I'm certain as listeners will know each field is slightly different in its flavor of misery for getting through that process.
1: You mentioned in the book that the book itself went through different iterations and that there was a time when you even had to set the book aside. How did you push through and how did this book actually come to be?
0: So I would say I did a NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, and that's where I got the first full draft of this book, like completely done. And that was probably in 2013, 2014-ish. And I had, uh, back when Twitter was less of a dumpster fire, and I had a community on Twitter that was there regularly... Um, one person I worked with was, uh, had worked with the University Press of Kansas and was looking for a chapter for a book. Um, there's a lot of series out of the University Press of Kansas about this alternate, you know, what happens if you don't get the academic brass ring job. Um, and so I, and I wrote back, hey, I don't write for free. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. And I was like, no, 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 hold still. I will write for you because you're my friend if you introduce me to your editor. And that's how um, I ended up getting in front of the editor in chief at the University Press of Kansas and being able to pitch her. And then I told her my chasing chickens story and made her laugh and made her believe in the project. Um, I mean, it took, uh, you know, it went in front of some reviewers because, you know, a press still wants to make money even a university press. I know we kind of think of them as these wonderful nonprofit institutions publishing very niche topics and they are, um, Unfortunately, Reviewer 2, it's always Reviewer 2, uh, came back with kind of a scathing, this is a terrible pedestrian book, no one's interested in it, her story's not remarkable, why would anyone read this? It was so bad that um, I had an agent at the time, and he's like, are you okay, would you like me to call you? Do you need a phone call? And I was like, I'm good. Like, um, So it had to go to a third reviewer, and the third reviewer was the person who I think gave the most helpful feedback so if you were my reviewer three listening to this thank you uh the the comment was the chronology is not really clear if someone doesn't know you you kind of go back and forth in time and so I ended up really carefully revising my next round of, of revisions was making sure The timeline from undergraduate to graduation was really, really clear and putting in more signposts of like, oh, it was my master's time. Oh, this is my first year of my PhD and making sure my chronology was really crystal clear so it didn't feel. And I also joked my parents in the car after that feedback. I'm like, if anyone's had a conversation with me, this is just the default setting.
1: (laughs) It's so true that when we graduate, all of those experiences are so tangled. It's like a plate of spaghetti and trying to take out one piece and say, well, this was really crucial during the first year of the PhD or this experience really could be signpost as my senior year of college, it all gets packaged together as this very tangled through line when we live it. But when we do try to tell it, especially someone who doesn't know us or who didn't do our exact course of study, they do get lost in the chronology.
0: And that was, I think, the most helpful advice. And so when I revised, um, I really made sure, like, I, I mean, the second round, so National novel, novel Writing Month, it's about you're supposed to hit 50,000 words. And so I went from you know a 250 page book down to where it is now in like the 120s, 130s. Um, mostly also because looking at other books in the space of like kind of career and life advice, like no one's coming at you with a novel length book on it. It's really a, in that space, a lot of it is shorter. Really punchy. Um, A lot of it, if you, I had been working as an executive assistant at the time when I was finalizing it. And a lot of business and advice books also tend to be here's an anecdote, here's the lesson, and here's what you should be thinking about. And so, um, you know, it can come across a little bit like blog entries, but part of it too is it's meant for someone to be able to you know, read a chapter and not need to read the whole book to get something out of it. And my hope is that, you know, if, you know, each chapter, hopefully someone can find something to take with them and kind of take a nugget of advice or reassurance. And I think the biggest message is things can suck really bad right now. And you may not be where you thought you would be. But you will be okay.
1: The book is part memoir and part advice book. And at the end of each chapter, we have either questions or thought exercises for us to really get in touch with maybe options we have been talked out of even believing are important, things you ask us to think about, or, you know, what three things in life won't you give up? Um, which in grad school, many of us were told, you're going to give up everything. And you really cut. Ca- get us to come back to ourselves in this book. There's a lot of emotional undergirding of the book. And you mentioned um, at a couple of points, I think that you got some counseling and that you had some wrestling with feelings of disappointment yourself, that when you graduated, you really thought life would go on one path and it didn't. Do you want to talk about that emotional work we need to do when we have a PhD and we're not going to be a professor?
0: And I would like to chime in that it was life-saving work. I fell into probably an extreme depression. I became very despondent my last year. My grandmother died while I was working on my dissertation. I was supposed to visit her in July, and she died in June. And I hadn't seen her in person in several years. And that was devastating. Um, It was, I think... It is one of those mileposts in your life that I learned, you know, there is the now there, there grad school, you know, you're working towards this far future and it's really easy to think that there's all the time in the world for the people and the things around you that you love, because this is, you're working towards a goal and, and the people in grad school around you can have that same mentality a lot of folks you are being trained by have never left the, the university system. They've never had a job outside. And, you know, being in a, with a counselor really helped me work through so much of the fear, the anxiety, the complete doubt, um, because I think what appeals to a lot of people with a graduate career it's a really defined, like, these are the places you work. This is the kind of work that you do. This is what you do for the next level of promotion. This is how you get a tenure binder together. You know, you teach a course and you have to prepare people for the next part of the series. And I think for a lot of people, it provides a huge amount of structure and known, the known world, essentially. And when you don't, get interviews, when you don't get that academic interview, you know, you think, what, what comes next? And this is something I've written about after the book, I do occasionally post some thoughts on LinkedIn, as I have joined a few private groups here and there around the internet to try to help people who are in a similar position to me. Um, And one of the, the things I have come to advise and to know about myself, thanks to counseling was, don't mistake grief and regret they're very similar emotions and i still grieve the life i thought i would have as a professor and i am almost a decade out from getting my phd i still you know do i still feel jealous when my friends who got tenure post about their classes or their tenure binders or their life goal yes absolutely I grieve who I thought I would be. Um, I don't regret where I ended up. And I think those are two very distinct things. Like, it's okay to keep grieving. You will, you're grieving a version of yourself that you worked for a very long time to become. I mean, some graduate programs, you know, mine was a master's slash to a PhD program. Um, I spent six years in what was supposed to be a five-year program. No one needs to worry about that. I also f- turned in my dissertation the the year it was due with like four hours, a couple of two, three hours to spare. No one knows that except you and all the readers of the book now and all the listeners. But outside of that, like no one knows. It's fine. Um, but to come back to, um, but to come back to the question, you know, counseling really provided me a safe space to work through all of those emotions and to have someone who wasn't your advisor, wasn't your peer, who was also potentially aiming for one of the 10 jobs that were open that year or whatever. Um, You know, I think it really helped me process the grief of losing my grandmother. It helped me, um, you know, process the overwhelm, the complete and utter overwhelm of what am I going to do with my life now that the plan that I've had for, you know, six years is fucked. Like, you know, you, you, when you're, especially when you're kind of one of the strong students in a program, when you're, you know, always doing the extra stuff, organizing the conferences, doing the extra professor readings, you know, doing all of the, you know doing trips to libraries to do archival research like when you've done everything you think you should have done and it still wasn't enough to get an interview or a job it is absolutely devastating and on top of that like I hadn't gone and seen my grandmother before she died like that is a hard pill and a hard truth to swallow is I was so concerned about this future that ended up not happening that I missed out on people in my life and things in my life that were way more important.
1: You talk about um, a gift she managed to get to you after she had passed. Do you want to talk about the necklace?
0: Yeah. Um, it was just, it was beautiful and it's something I, I wear um, every once in a while, but I do really really miss her um and she loved chickens and she had chickens on her farm and loved them had like chicken iconography and so now whenever i see anything with like a little chicken when i'm out shopping or i'm out in the world like i just fondly think of her and her chickens on the farm and that was start what started becoming a thread for the novel was the book was like how do not novel but the chasing chickens like how do i take all of these experiences and weave them together with a common thread and like there were this moment of like you know these memories and i was like oh and then i and then i literally ended up chasing chickens and i was like this is the book this is the book you know this is you know you you, because if you've ever had to chase chickens they are fast they don't listen to you Um, and, and they, 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 they just, oh, those little prehistoric dinosaurs, they are, they are their own little beast.
1: You tell us a story about being on a twin engine plane with your grandmother and, and flying out over the farm and, and you take us inside her house where she loved to have chickens on everything. And then later in the book, your boss needs you to do something and you end up Chasing Chickens, which seems to be what inspired the title of the book. Do you want to tell that specific story of how you ended up chasing chickens for your boss?
0: Oh, yeah. So I had had probably um, the worst year of my life before that. I had um, the dog had I had had with a partner died That partner and I ended our relationship after almost eight years together. We were engaged for five. I was left in El Paso, Texas at a job that wasn't a job I was enjoying. Um, And so I moved to Oregon because I was restarting my life and I took a job as an executive assistant to a CEO. And it was New Year's Eve, and he needed to go to the airport, so, and he would have me drive and use his car and then drop it off, etc. And so he's like, oh, by the way, um, I need you to go feed my chickens after you drop me off. And, like, I had other plans that Saturday, and I was like, what, what? He's like, oh yeah, I forgot to get chicken feed, but and if anyone who's not been 4-H farm raised or had family who have chickens, like chickens will turn cannibalistic if they run out of food. So this is not a joke of like you need to go feed these chickens because if not, they're going to tear each other apart. Sounds a lot like academia in hindsight. <laughs> and um so I am like frantically trying to get, cause he lives way out at a gentleman's farm, like way out of where I am. And I'm like in my head doing the math of like, okay, if nothing goes wrong, like I'll be able to get the, them fed and I'll get to my date on time. It's going to be great. Um, and so I I get to the farm, I pull out the chicken feed, I feed the chickens, everything's fine. I close the gate and I hear like, like in a movie, when a horror movie, when you like hear the noise and you're like, oh no. Like I hear go like the cooing of the chicken. And I look down and I've got a chicken to my left. And I should pause and say there were like 30 or 40 chickens in this coop. So it wasn't a matter of like, oh, let me open the door and let one back in. Because like all of their friends were like right at the door, like let us out too. Um, and then that chicken took off while the cat that was outside decided like, this is the best day of my life. So I am running around a chicken coop outside on, on, trying to get this chicken in without it being eaten. um, And just like running around and the whole time I'm running around this coop, I'm just like, what the fuck have I done with my life? I have a goddamn PhD. I'm chasing a fucking chicken. There's a little bit of humility that comes with that. So, you know, chase it around. And by the time I got it, like, you know, and they flop, they f- like flap halfway. They are fast. They are relentless. They chickens are. Yeah, they are. I've heard like chickens are my cardio is a T-shirt that comes up in my really creepy algorithm. I'm like, yes, they are. Because if you start chasing one, they are not stopping for you at all. So by the time I got it back, um, the other chickens had like gone back to roost and were away from the door. So I got it in and then I like managed to make my other things. And then I got a text that night from my boss. Someone said there was a car there for a really long time. Like, do you know what that's about? And I was like, no idea. None at
1: all. It wasn't me. Wow. So one of the big themes of the book is that things aren't going to go the way that We all imagine after graduation, even if someone is going to get one of those very rare tenure track jobs, it's not going to be swift. There's going to be lag time. And it's perhaps unlike other careers where hires happen quickly. Um, It can be months or years. And in the meantime, whether you're going to stay in academia or you're going to be academic adjacent or you're going to go completely outside your field, There's going to be this whole liminal space, and that's a rough spot to be in, particularly because the people who know you, who've been watching for six years or 10 years, wondering what you were going to do next, are really starting to say, so what is next? And there's all that emotional pressure. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
0: Yes. I will say, having been out in the quote-unquote real world, uh, people quit jobs all the time. People change careers all the time. People find new paths all the time. So non-academics, like they're just like, what are you up to? It's not like this weighted question of like, why are you failing? It's a, uh, oh, what you doing? Um, Because I have, I was at a job once where someone walked in, in the morning and went to lunch and never came back. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, in academia, I think we get the sense that, oh, we're here forever. Like we're gonna, this is the career. This is our calling. And I think that, any job that has a calling part to it is a real place where you can end up having your labor exploited and, and you're, because you're working with, you know, it's an emotional connection to this calling, right? And, um, it's a job, it, it, even if an academic job is a job, um, if you have, you can have bad bosses, you can have toxic departments, and it's a job. And I the problem is for a lot of people, and a lot of people I see in some of the private groups that I'm part of is that it's become so much of their identity. They don't know who they are if they're not a professor. And and it's so difficult to create who you are outside of that full identity because you have the prestige. You have, you know, it's people understand what a professor is. And as I've been out of academia you know some of the really popular myths are like oh professors are highly compensated or oh you've been out of academia for 10 years but aren't you going to go back to teaching like there's this idea outside of academia it's like any other job like oh you'd find an opening and you can work in it again um not knowing all of the stigma and the prejudice and like the entire adjunct system that exploits labor um so you know all that to say it's it's a process right like you are going to have to figure out who you are outside of your job and um you know and that's you'll learn to make new boundaries is what i did is you know yes i had loved what i did and i i missed i i still i still have projects if you know if i had access to jstor again or any of the academic libraries like there are definitely projects that I think are relevant and wonderful that I would love to dive deeper in. But, you know, after working a full-time job outside of it, I'm good. Like I've got other activities and other social things I do that are not, you know, they are not my degree. And I think you're going to start repeating to yourself, I am not my degree. And I think with PhDs and academia, that is often something that we, you know, lean into is that, you know, I am my degree, I am my field of study, because we are the experts in what we've studied. And I think that's the hardest part of your last year of your PhD is that you are becoming the complete expert. And your advisors are, are not able to guide every step of your way. And it becomes a very lonely year or two as you finish up your your dissertation. Um, but you are not you know outside of academia you know people are very fulfilled and so if you're on the fence about leaving academia or if you're on the fence about like what it what does this mean if i have spent all this time and i don't use my degree and there are so many people who don't use their bachelors don't use their match masters like people i i like to think when i we have um occasionally at my day job we have uh you know college students come in and i like to explain to them that um you know you're getting tools in a toolbox for the future and you don't necessarily know where those tools are going to be used and so think of your phd as a beautiful giant toolbox where you got to learn a bunch of skills and work with complex materials and think and have wonderful discussions and all of those skills are relevant and helpful elsewhere as well. And that you are, um, you know, there is going to be some prejudice of like, well, what does a PhD mean for me as an employer, if you're looking to leave? Um, but more and more people are leaving the Academy. And I believe when I left in, um, you know, 2013, 2012, 2013, Sixty percent of individuals earning a PhD did not end up with a tenure track position or or a university position. That's the majority. The majority of people did not end up with that, you know, brass ring academic job. So, a lot of people are on the job market that have PhDs. They have these wonderful in-depth research skills, critical thinking skills, um, and a lot of people, you know, think that they aren't as Good at a job as they could, you know, as others, when in fact you have incredible skill sets that are very valuable to employers.
1: And that's some of the things that you walk us through in the book is the importance of rethinking the skills and the experiences, the aspirations that we had. Because if we do think in this sort of blanket way, like I will not, I'm not using my degree in this job it can be kind of soul crushing. But when we start breaking down what we did to get that degree and how those skills translate into a new job, then we can see the path forward. And you talk about the importance of really translating that out of academic speak into um, the language that the employer needs to hear. And a lot of that language you're gonna see in the job ad itself and to mirror that it sounds like in the book that you've now been on both sides. You've been interviewed, and you've been an interviewer. You've gone through this experience, and you've advised other people. What are some of the tips that you that you give about how you translate all of this and how you handle these interviews?
0: That's a really good question, and um, I might not be in the book. It's a lot. Um, when I wrote the book, I had just gotten like my first non academic job. And a lot of it is I recommend reading the job description rather than the job title, because a job is the activities you do. Um, So seeing if you are interested in what the parts of the job, if your skills fit the parts. And I for me, I mentioned I did a lot of uh, advising and, um, you know, kind of helping my peers out. So I always liked being that resource node. I also really enjoyed organizing conferences and events. And so taking those skills and taking that to a job, you know, now I work in public relations as my day job. And, uh, you know, I'm training a lot of people. I think I, I one thing that people don't realize is if you can teach, you can train and you can create systems. You're, you've learned how to create systems. So I'm all about training and scaling my knowledge and making sure the people around me are successful. I always get um, colleagues coming to me asking me questions because, yeah, it might be Googleable, but I know what to ask Google. And I'm usually getting answers faster than other people on my teams because I know how to find information. We've been trained very well on how to find answers and to evaluate what's a good answer. And those are really important critical skills that a lot of employers. Would use want and need and so like if you'd asked me five years ago do you want to be a senior account executive I would have been what is that but when I saw the job posting I saw what it was asking for and at the time I was interested in doing paid social media and paid uh, digital ads and the job description was everything I wanted to be doing and so I reached out to the recruiter and was like hey this is the job for me, and then I was have I had an interview, and they they did actually want some of the skills I brought for my PhD. They saw I spoke Spanish. They had a client based out of Madrid at the time, and I and d- day two or three on that job, I was writing in my very weak French to people in Morocco to try to get information for an event we were hosting, and I was writing in Spanish to some other clients, um, you know, other people for an event, and you know, am I using my, my degree every day? No. Uh, but am I using a lot of the skills behind what got me there? Yes. And so I think like setting a list down and saying, okay, I, you know, writing, like writing down, I like to do X, Y, and Z. I, I was people in grad school joke that I was the admin. Like I would, I would admin things. I would like, what's the policy here? You know, I did the fire extinguisher training so that we could have our own like brunch stuff that we didn't have to pay for the university catering so we could do it even cheaper. Um, And we're allowed to bring in, you know, grocery store prepared food for a for our breakfast for at the conference because we were properly trained in food safety, which also included having to know how to use a fire extinguisher, like learning all the loopholes because I read through all of the, the documentation. Uh, Is a very useful skill when you're like, oh, yeah, hey, client, here's actual documentation of what you need to do for X, Y, Z. Here you go. Um, Yeah, it's uh, you, you get to practice, you know, what does it mean? Like, tell me what it means to write a dissertation. I can write complex things and I can research and I can look through lots of, you know, I can read through a lot of stuff very quickly and synthesize that information And for a lot of businesses, that's really helpful. I do a lot of research in my everyday job because we are, you know, in public relations, we're looking for new clients. And so we'll research them. We'll research, you know, we might research an industry that we're getting into and you need to understand it. And then you're in front of a client telling them why they should hire you. Um, and your you know all that knowledge that you had and all of the data points that you got and all of that information, you know it's it's definitely not um nineteenth or twentieth century Spanish literature, but all those skills have you know translate quite nicely into being in front of a client and giving a presentation um or you know explaining why what you've done is helping them or why you are the right choice for, for their next campaign.
1: You spoke a while ago that one thing academics don't realize is that outside of academia, people quit jobs. They don't just resign. They maybe walk off after lunch. Um, And One of the skills that we have in our toolbox as academic is that tenacity that you just described in your um, reapplying your skills to your new job and, and doing the deep dives into not just the surface level of what Google says, but really digging through things. That level of tenacity that we bring to what we do is not necessarily something that every employer would count on in every employee.
0: True. And it's also um, the our writing ability. Like we go, oh, I just write. And then you are r- recognizing that, oh, like our ability to sit and write for a time or to write something that we don't actually care about, but we have a client who's like... He wants this for a campaign, you know, being able to wear different hats to kind of, um, ch- you know, to kind of change our voice. We've all had to please a professor whose pet project was something we didn't care about, but we ha- we we knew what it took to get the grade. Um, you know, that kind of, you know, chameleon with our writing and our voice, like that's important too. And I think another thing is, you know, you don't have to give a hundred percent every day um and I, i i started doing yoga in grad school and something that yoga taught me was it's not about getting into a position correctly in yoga it's about what you can hold and maintain and so you know if you go to your limit and you can't hold it for very long like that's not very helpful So you don't want to get into a new job and, you know, go a hundred miles an hour because you're heading for burnout. It's okay to have days where, you know, I promise a lot of my PhD friends, your shit day at work where you half ass things is probably better than some people's whole ass days. Like you have, you know, you are, a lot of us are operating at a skill set that is much higher and much stronger than you know you might be in an entry role where it's like oh this is just a this only requires a bachelor's um and you know you're operating at what probably two or three other people combined are doing and so you don't want to burn yourself out either by trying to become a fourth person for the role um i hope that makes sense but yeah people pe- don't job people leave jobs all the time like you don't have to stay like you can get into a position a job outside of academia and go oh god i hate this bide your time find another one leave like other people do and if you're being asked you know oh you were only here for you know five months okay well the answer is i I realized early on it wasn't the right fit and i wanted to make sure that they could you know find a new person and i i decided it was best to move on it's you know this isn't this isn't this isn't forever you know jobs aren't forever and i think even more nowadays with the proliferation of you know all the online jobs and all of the data points you can get about different places and positions you know people move jobs very frequently now like an idea of being in a job for 30 40 50 years is a very rare thing and in a very specialized industry um, so don't feel like You picked this one role that's non-academic and you hate it. You don't have to keep doing it. You can find another job. Um, Jobs, you know, I've been fired twice. It sucks, Um, you know, and I survived. It it really did suck, but it survived. And I ended up in the job I am now that I really enjoy. So, you know, there are going to be ebbs and flows and you're going to be just fine.
1: And you give some advice in the book about how to handle interviews, Um, particularly if you've left a job, that it's just one sentence about why you left the job. It's not the full book report, because if we go full bore academic on all the nuances of why we left, it'll sound like our interview is our therapy session.
0: Exactly. I was going to say, don't, this is not a therapy session. This is a, you get a one sentence, you know. I found another opportunity, um, you know, and for one of my jobs that I was let go from, it was because they were experiencing financial difficulties. And when you work in marketing, you realize like, oh, that happens at agencies frequently. And so another agency is not going to be like, what did you do wrong? They'll be like, oh, you lost a major client and, you know, there wasn't enough budget to keep everybody. Cool. You know, it happens.
1: And maybe a parallel for academic speak is that, why did we leave our adjuncting job? Well, it was a short-term contract and I completed it.
0: Right. And then you also talk about how excited you are about the role that you're applying for. You know, I saw this role and I was really excited about this part of it and that part of it. And like, I know my experience doing this is going to be really helpful for, you know, this project or this thing that you're looking for.
1: I had a job after grad school working at a library, and I've seen quite a bit on Ed Twitter and on other threads of Twitter that if you're applying for a library job, don't say, it's because I love to read and because I love books. But that's actually what I said in my interview, and I think there's something to be said for sincere enthusiasm, <laughs> Um, because I did get hired, and I knew it wasn't a, a job where you get to sit around and read books, but I knew I got to take books home with me and read them at night, um, and that I liked I liked libraries because I'd spend an awful lot of time in them, um, and so we can translate that enthusiasm and still sound professional enough. Um, you you give an example in the book about you were applying for a job and you, you had to take a test. And one of the ways you translated both your enthusiasm and your skill and admitted a mild deficit in the test that you took was that you were fluent in the MLA style and not as fluent in the AP style. And that way that you handled it was very helpful to the potential employer. Can you talk more about that?
0: Yeah, it was a really long test. They, I had to edit a document. I had to write a press release. And they gave me all the information to do it as if I had like done the research myself. And um, at the end of the interview, they're like, oh, can you tell us, you know, because like I was getting close on time and, you know, you just kind of like much with my master's exam, you just had to make some choices and stick with it and get through it. And at the end, they were asking me, you know, what, what would you have done differently? How did you feel? And I said, oh, I think I could have been faster if I, but I'm fairly new to AP style. And they asked me what the hardest part of the job would be. And I said, oh, I'm going to miss my Oxford comma, but I'm willing to give it up for the job because AP style doesn't use an Oxford comma and MLA does. And so that I was the only candidate of the four that were finalists that said I could do, who said I could do it faster. Um, everyone else said that they would want more time. So knowing that your time management skills and your, you know, your ability to work through things and that you've essentially trained your brain to be, you know, like a computer and you've got a lot of great things that you can do and a lot of skills and processes and, you know, ways to approach problem solving that other candidates don't have.
1: And you offered if you got the job to buy the AP guide and study it at home and that, that urge to offer studying that comes natural to us, but maybe employers aren't used to hearing someone offering to, you know, do the skills training work.
0: And that's true. And that's often true for many of the jobs I have worked since, uh, you know, since grad school, because I'll see it as a where, where do I need to shore up my skills and how can I do that um, on my own? And a lot of people, um, you know, if it's not being done at the job, they're not doing it. And I would also caution, you know, don't work a second job that you're not getting paid for. Uh, And then also if you pay for your skill training, don't feel like you owe that employer anything. If you get a job that offers more pay or better benefits with the skills that you spent your own time getting Uh, to be very honest and, you know, unfiltered on that you know you don't if your employer is not willing to give you the time to improve your skill set you know you don't owe them anything if you're paying for it or if you're doing it yourself the other thing to keep in mind as well with uh is that you will probably work through things faster and uh like your rough drafts and your first drafts are probably going to be stronger than most other people's and you are likely going to have a better quality work product even, um, as a new, as a new employee. And that is a really helpful thing. I think I've, I've run into a couple of times of people not knowing how to work with someone with a PhD and they're like, well, you're working too fast. And for me, it's like, no, you just didn't tell me, like, I'm supposed to be looking for these three things when I'm doing this review. And now that I know that, I won't make that mistake again. And so one job I ended up like, I, I had a, I little did a little test. Uh, I, I did the editing in my normal speed. And then I watched a couple episodes on Netflix. And then I turned it in late, late, late in the afternoon, they were like, Oh, this is so much better. Thank you for not you know, you really spent your time on this. And I was like, no, I spent I didn't tell them. I was like, no, I spent the exact same time, but I just held on to it longer. So uh, you kind of learn some of those things of like, well, if the perception is it's the speed at which I do it is the problem, you can just, you know, they're they're paying for your time if you're salaried. And if you're salaried, and you get done early, you know, if you want to work, I wish when I was at my first job, like I had someone who'd had a PhD tell me they're paying for your time. And if you finish early, like, and they're not really giving you much to do, or, you know, you've done your job, like you're available, you're in the office, feel free to read or do your book. Or, you know, there's a reason a lot of really famous novelists worked at, you know, kind of basic government jobs, because like, once you do your job, you have time to write and do other things. Um, So I wish someone had sat me down and told me that because I, I was bored. I was looking for things to do. And I didn't just embrace the fact that I had been given this wonderful, like I can do this job in like half the time and I can just spend the other half of the time doing something else. In fact, at my first job I ended up getting um, starting an online master of fine arts program, because that's what I would do when I was, um, you know, bored. Uh, I would, I would work on my coursework when I was finished with my day job stuff.
1: And if we did that when we were grad school, it would not go well. But at the same time, most of us finish with a huge degree of burnout. We finish with our physical health compromised or our mental health compromised are both. And what you're describing is really ways to prevent burnout and still do the job at the level the employer expects, not the unreasonable level that we've taught ourselves to expect
0: exactly and a lot of it too is goes back to that idea i learned in yoga it's not about the getting the perfect position or like oh you can do this what can you maintain like what can you maintain day in day out because i think the hardest part for a lot of phds that they get a quote-unquote day job nine to five is that the hours are fixed you have um you know, it's every day and you don't have as much flexibility. And so if you go at 100% of your 100%, which is a lot of people's 150% or 200%, you are going to be very unhappy very quickly. And the thing, too, is we hold ourselves, I think, as PhDs to really high expectations of ourselves because we are we're highly driven individuals. Most of us are very, very highly driven and we want that perfection. We want that pat on the head. We want that. And I think I was a little bit of a rude awakening when like I busted my ass at a job and I got to my annual review and I got threes out of fives and some, some fours out of five that were generous, um, according to the person interviewing me. And I was just spluttering pissed off. And the next year... I did not volunteer for weekend work. I did not go above and beyond and I got the exact same scores and I was like noted. So it kind of depends on where you're working on if, you know, your, your all and everything gets you any rewards. And if it doesn't like, Hey, you're getting a paycheck, you're doing what they asked and you don't need to be all sparkly, shiny, extra about it. Like check the box folks. That's the nice thing is I leave work at work. And I think that is one of the best parts of being a non, um, you know, a non-practicing academic. I come home and my evening's mine. Um, I, I have my life outside of work and it's a really nice, clear delineation. I've got those boundaries, you know, I, I'm happy to hop in when it's a true emergency at work and I do work in public relations. And I, I did have um, an evening where I was like, Oh Yeah. You know, I, unless there's a fire, haha. Ha, and then there was actually a fire, a physical fire at the client's property, and so uh, I literally had to deal with it that night because it was on the news. We had to, you know, interface and work with media. Uh, but yeah, uh, a lot aside from actual fires, I do try to not work on work outside of my normal hours. And I think also it's about finding the the. Whether it's you have geographic restrictions or there's a city you want to be in, you know, finding a job that is interesting enough to keep you, you know, happy in that way. But you don't need you don't need to go 100 miles an hour every day, all day. Um, You it's okay to rest. It's okay to, you know, I remind myself, especially with the pandemic lately, is that, you know, C work in a pandemic is going to round up to an A. Like your worst day at work where you feel like you're doing a terrible job is probably rounding up to an A in the average of all the great work you're doing. Um, And I think a lot of academics too, like we have just been in such a highly competitive environment that we don't think of our work in positive terms. I think we're thinking about how we often are coming short or how we can do better or how we're failing if we're not doing something every moment of the day and I don't think we really get taught how to rest and how to reset. And that is a skill that you will learn and that is in my opinion one of the most important skills to learn post PhD or if you're toward the end of your PhD, you know, it's an important skill to learn of how to put your own oxygen mask on. You can't help anybody else you if you are not taking care of yourself, and if you are overwhelmed and miserable, you know, one, look for counseling, look for that outside voice, because having accounts for me having a counselor who was not in academia, uh, really helped get like, yes, they had a similar degree path, but they were in you know the working world. And so to have that outside perspective was invaluable. And to really know that you are, yeah, it goes back to the, you are not your job. You know, it, it's a paycheck. You're getting your pay. You're doing what they asked. And and it's okay not to be extraordinary. I know it seems sacrilegious for everyone who's done a PhD and is like, you know, aim for all the fellowships or the grants or the, you know, I believe me, I, I had the high grades. I had the scholarships, the fellowships. I had all of that. And I busted my ass and I organized things and I did all of that in grad school and I still ended up not getting an academic job and that's a harsh reality. And so, um, you know, it's the same thing with work. Like, you know, in five, 10 years, like, you know, make sure when you work late or you work extra, it really matters. And that you have at least kind of a cool story later of like, Oh Yeah. You know, the reason I ended up working that night when I was supposed to be with my friends was because, like, there was actually this really big news story that I had to help my client through, Um, you know, make sure it matters.
1: We're starting to run out of time, but there's a couple of things I want to make sure we cover before I have to let you go. Through the book, you invite us to interrogate forms of self-sabotage that we have been trained to not see a self-sabotage because they were built into how we succeeded in the higher ed system. But they also are ways that we hold ourselves back. We don't take risks and we're not willing to sit with failure and learn all the things that we gained by trying something, whether it worked out or not. Chapter three is called Getting Over the Fear of No. In the few minutes we have left, can you give us some of your nuggets of wisdom about why it's going to help us to self, to stop the self-sabotaging when we get over the fear of no? This is a big one,
0: right? And it's something I, I say to myself often. The worst that is going to happen with the non-academic job you apply to is they say no. The worst that's going to happen if you apply to a fellowship, even though you're not in academia anymore, they might say no. The You know, that is the worst. And if that's the worst that's going to happen, if someone says no, if you don't apply, if you don't put yourself forward, you've already said no. You said no to yourself. And and, um you know, there's I, I jokingly say, if you like gambling or you like the lottery, you know, some of these grants, some of these opportunities, there's a lot of foundations that offer independent scholarship uh, opportunities and funding Um, You know, if you say no to yourself, like some of these opportunities, you've got like maybe 3000 people applying like that is better odds than the lotto. You have to really think of, you know, don't say no to yourself because, you know, the person that you're applying for a job with might see something like I would have never thought that my Spanish background would have necessarily been interesting to an employer And I'm in this interview and they're like, oh, you speak Spanish. Oh, we have a client for you. Like, oh, this is really good for us. Um, You know, and I wouldn't have thought that that was a selling point because I wasn't applying with my my degree background. I was just applying based on the skills I had earned over my working life. So, you know, don't say no to yourself, you know, and if that's the worst you're going to hear, it's it's that's not the end of the world. Right. It's it's just a no. People say no all the time.
1: And you also remind us that it only takes one yes. Do you want to talk about how that philosophy will help us?
0: Absolutely. You know, I applied for, I kid you not, hundreds of jobs when I graduated. And I was applying, I was so, so just down on myself, because I couldn't seem to find anyone who would interview me. And I felt like, what have I done? I was even like considering call center jobs. Just, I was like, I wanted a position, a job. Um, so I was, I was desperate. And then I was dating the partner at the time was said, you know, you only need to hear yes once. And so, you know, I, I worked, I started networking. I started, um, you know, I started, I found out that the, the university's orchestra allowed community members to perform with them. So I started making connections at that university and then from there, I asked the conductor, I was like, hey, you know, I've been with you guys for a semester, like, could I use you as a reference here, because I'm really trying to get a job. The conductor said yes, I was able to apply and then do that test and do the job. And so, you know, again, it goes back to that getting over the fear of no, like, the worst he was ever going to do is say, no, I'm not going to be a reference. You know, that was the worst that was going to happen. Um, so You have to hear yes once. And I heard yes once and all the other no's didn't matter.
1: What do you hope listeners will take away?
0: I hope that they take away that you will be okay. That I understand that life after academia, when you've had this whole plan, is absolutely terrifying. When the plan doesn't go the way you wanted and that, you know, you might chase some chickens figurative, hopefully, for y'all. But you will, you can find happiness and purpose outside of academia. You can find wonderful, unexpected turns in your life, whether it's a job, a place, a person. And at the end of the day, you
1: will be okay. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Rachel Neff, and sharing insights from your book, Chasing Chickens, when life after higher education doesn't go the way you planned. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you are listening to Academic Life, hosted here on New Books Network. Please join us again.